Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, joined by my good friend, colleague, and co-host, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Excited to talk about the first week of Pacers basketball. And I don't know how our listeners feel, or even how you feel, really, but I kind of like it when we do some of these podcasts in a chunk like this, because it really gives me a little bit more time to reflect and look back at what actually happened in the games like if I did these as a reaction pod just speaking of me personally like I don't think they would be quite as good because I wouldn't have as much opportunity to really dig into the film so I hope that people are willing to wait on our reaction pods so that they can get more from me as far as conversation and talking points yeah, and I think uh, it's a good point too. I'm glad that we got uh we got yesterday's game after what the first game was. I mean, what the first two games were. Um not that, again, like like we've talked about like this season is not about measuring by wins and losses, but I think uh I my hope is that that it, and I know I'm going to be wrong, but my hope is that those first two games are the worst basketball we see this team play all year. Um just with respect to what that defense looked like and you know, we'll get into that, but um First thing that I wanted to ask you just in general, not even with anything like crazy nuance, but what has been your overall impression, overall feeling of uh, of the first three games of the season so far? You know, I've been writing about the Pacers. I thought about this the other day since the Paul George Miami Heat days. Mm-hmm. And I honestly can't remember a start to the season where I had less grasp on a team. Yeah. And like, it's just a different thing to navigate. Like, to be honest, like I've never covered a Pacer team like this. I told somebody that today, like, it's going to be a learning experience for me too. It's like, it is for the team as they go from game to game and knowing exactly, you know, what our fans going to want to hear and read about when, you know, the context is different. So when they've been playing so many different lineups and unfortunately, you know, Miles stepped on the ball boy and sprained his ankle. I think that changed the calculus for them and what they were planning to do to a degree. Um, it's, it's been a lot to track and keep track of, to be honest with you, Mark. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to concur with you there. It's, um, it is, it is different. This is, this is different basketball. Um, but there is encouraging and and fun stuff to take away from this. And I think I'll just say right off rip my, um, as, as, as I am want to do, I have like wildly optimistic takes most of the time, but just in general, watching the NBA at large this year has been really fun. The first three games, it feels like it's been a whirlwind. This last week's been absolutely crazy. One of the busiest weeks of my life. Um, trying to keep up with everything. I've finally seen every team now. Um, I think yesterday I finally caught every team for the first time at least. And I've seen most of them multiple times. And just like the talent overall is so fun. Like I, you can really just see a lot of the ways that other teams are trying to do things and, um, I don't know if you've watched the Utah Jazz yet this year. What a quirky, fun collection of players that is most definitely not going to actually be together for the majority of this season. Uh, but I've gotten an immense amount of joy watching them punk a few teams to open up the year. Um, so that's been fun. But 
Pacers, we have to start with Benedict Matherin. Uh, I just saw this tweet from, I believe it was from, it was either the Pacers official account or NBA.com, um, that Benedict has scored the most points by a rookie in their first three games since 1995. Yeah, I included that in my article this morning. That was actually from Zach Cram at the ring. Uh, yes. Yeah, he looked that up, and then I think the Pacers shared it. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he's in company with Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins and like some some really lofty names there, Isaiah Thomas, in terms of scoring output for their first three games. And I have to ask you, Mark, like just in recent Pacer history here, I looked up and Benedict scored 0.83 points per minute that he's been on the court. TJ Warren during the seedings games and the bubble scored 0.85 points per minute when he was in Orlando. So like I was literally thinking about this this morning. Have you watched a more enjoyable three game scoring performance from someone since bubble other than bubble Warren with regards to ben, what Benedict Matherin's done over these three games. Like, this can you is, think of another Pacer performance that's been as enjoyable? I can't think Pacers. No, no, not at all. Um, I was just, I, see, I was thinking NBA at large. And even then I'm like, this is, that's pretty rarefied. Like this is wild to watch. Um, and what, I mean, we're going to dive more in, in depth into it, but just like, I think what's crazy is that I see those numbers. And I'm like, yeah, it's not fluky. Like, I don't think he's going to do this the entire rest of the season. But also, like, the things that he's doing are replicable. It's not just hot shooting. Like, yes, he's not going to shoot 51% from three for the full year. But um, I'm just – I'm so impressed to start. I think maybe that stretch, like, I think it was two or three years ago when Damian Lillard averaged, like, 45 points per game in, in March or something. Um, but that's about as close as I can get to this. So it's pretty impressive. I mean, I was just boggled during the third quarter last night. Yeah, that was wild. And it's like, it's stuff that we just weren't really, not that we weren't prepared to see him do it, but like not this early. Like, I think you put this out. He had like five attempts from three in isolation last year. And he and just he like, made one. Exactly. And he's, he did it, what, three or four times yesterday? Yeah, I mean that the I mean, yeah, it's it's not the degree. He's not covering the same amount of ground as Victor Oladipo. He's not doing it with the same degree of closing speed, but the fact that he passed it to Terry Taylor and backed out to get his defender off balance to close and then attacked to the three-point line and rose up and then did the other one at the top of the key against Sadiq Bay. Like the nuances of that one that was just so much basketball joy watching that in slow motion with him coming up to the three-point line and going to rise into his pull-up the minute that he sees Sadiq Bey step back on his right foot. Sadiq Bey's right heel hadn't even touched the ground, and he was getting up to shoot. Like That's why he basically needed no space to do it, and then Sadiq Bey had to reach out with his left because he didn't have time to lunge back with his right. So as a right-handed shooter, Matherin's making that shot with Sadiq Bey's left hand in his face, which yeah. like not every coach teaches offhand closeouts. Some of them do, but most NBA players will still close out with their right hand. So like the fact that he had like no room against the left-hand closeout, read the footwork of Sadiq Bey and the defensive coverage and like just casually makes that shot. Like that was just one of the most audacious things. And I just, I was not expecting it, Mark. I admit, like we watched, we did the stock up, stock down series. There was a lot of things I liked about Benedict Matherin. And there are ways from that that the Pacers are using him, but I I did not expect to see that last night in game three yeah. of that third quarter. Yeah, and what what I've been really impressed by too, and it's it seems small, but just based on again, like you're talking about what we saw at at um 
at Arizona, I mean, I've really liked his ball movement. Like, not that I think he's been a great passer, but like he's been really good at just okay. I don't have an opportunity here. I'm I'm shifting the ball and 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 moving. Like, I think that there's still a lot for him to keep you know improving on and learning with that. But I, I have been kind of impressed with that. That was even an improvement from Friday to Saturday, honestly, because I felt in the Spurs game that he had missed several playmaking opportunities that would have been there for him. And I made like a one line note of that in the article this morning, because what you just said, like there were times in transition where he could have forced the issue and he like stuttered his steps and transitioned to pass or pitch the ball ahead to a corner shooter. Or like he came off a DHO, saw he didn't have anything and passed it to Chris Duarte in the corner. Like, it's not like an advanced read, but the difference being is like, I I remember my stock down in that article was that there was too many times where if Arizona ran a play that quote unquote was for him, he didn't realize that just because the play is for you doesn't mean the shot is for you. And like last night in particular, I thought there was like three or four spots where it's like, yeah, that's zoom action for Benedict Matherin or that's veer for Benedict Matherin. But he's realizing that like, I don't have to score no matter what here. So I think that's a good point by you. Yeah. And I, uh, I mean, even just like looking at a, looking at a shot chart is really fun because we talked about um, at the end of preseason, we talked about, okay, is, you know, is the free throw free throw, like the uh, ability to get to the line real. And he's getting the line five times a game right now. Like the finishing through contact has been really impressive. Um, like he's doing stuff with in-air adjustments and, like you mentioned, I just think the, the overall confidence he's had has been like, that's just the kind of stuff that I couldn't really predict or anticipate like that. I mean, like he was obviously very confident in Arizona, but to come in and do it the way that he's done now has been just wild. But when I look, when you look at his shot, I think he's taken like um, three to five shots max outside of floater range. Um which I think not, not again, like, like you and I will always harp on this. It's not that the mid range is bad, but it just is indicative. Okay. He's not picking up the ball all the time at the nail. Like, and part of that is like, like we've, you, you wrote about and like, we've kind of both been tweeting about throughout the, the week. Like they've done such a good job of scripting him to, to get looks that are on the ball, coming off the ball that make it so much easier for him to get to the rim, just on a straight line drive or without really having to be awesome with his handle. And there have been like little in, intricate improvements in his handle that we've seen since Arizona and that, that really popped at summer league. But overall, it's just the, they, things have been so simplified for him and he's just running away with it, um, which has been really awesome to see. And even more impressive considering how bad the screening is normally. So. Yeah. I mean, and, and he has, you know, he's shown some pretty decent footwork too when he yes. gets downhill. I mean, the he's, way, he's, yeah. He's been shifty at times when he needs to be sometimes into the contact deliberately yeah. and, and he's absorbing it. Like he's absorbing the contact and still meaning to regain his balance. So um, pretty crazy amounts of strength being displayed at times too, when he does get all the way to the basket. But I do want to talk a little bit because like we're talking about it being replicable. And I think that a lot of it is, I mean, I, it, mm-hmm. it's just so crazy when you watch. And that's why I pointed that out too. Like they don't run as much of the stuff for Chris as they run for Benedict and buddy. Like the two of them see more similar actions, but like just watching the three of those people execute the same play or execute the sideline out of bounds play. And of course the defense isn't always going to be identical. The same players aren't always on the floor, but just watching how much, 
deeper he can get off the same pin down than the other two and his ability to, you know, create contact and search to, to hit first to create, to clear space Mm -hmm. um, is a lot different than the other two. But in the third quarter, I do want to talk about something that happened yesterday because when I was watching that game back, because as I told you, like just full disclosure for everybody listening, I watched the game live, of course, was like gobsmacked by Benedict Matherin in the background, but I was at a birthday party. So I had to rewatch it. And then I ended up rewatching this portion this morning just to verify what I was seeing. And the Detroit Pistons, what a puzzling crew. <laughs> yeah. I do not understand why in the third quarter, when you have Killian Hayes on the floor, that he is not defending Benedict Matherin during that entire scoring outburst and then clear through like the first five minutes of the fourth quarter. Meanwhile, off and on, the Pacers are putting Goga and or Ijax on Killian Hayes and using them as a weak side roamer off of off of him. So like if he's just going to be a hiding spot at one end and you're going to assign him to TJ McConnell at the other, what was the point of that? And like that, that's one thing that I will say, like right now, Benedict Matherin's very new and I don't, you know, teams, I don't feel like really know what to do with him yet because yeah. the way that he plays through these types of actions isn't super typical. So I would think that in an, in another matchup or if they were to play, you know, a two game mini series, I don't think Dwayne Casey would proceed in that same way again. Yeah. And like, if you go back and watch that fourth quarter of the Spurs game, and this is not me trying to take something away from Benedict. It's just the reality of the situation. Like, he gets past Josh Richardson on the perimeter. Jakob Pertle stunts at the nail. There's literally no one else to help. And he releases from that stunt to rush back to Terry Taylor above the break. Like, that's what you do when you're not, you know, having tons of scouting information on the yeah. players that are on the floor. And that type of stuff will shift over time. I mean, we saw that a little bit with Duarte last year. You know, he comes out and has a 27-point game in the opener, and little by little teams did do different things against him. That being said, I believe in what, and, and not because I'm trying to degrade Duarte here, I believe in what I'm seeing and the viability and growth of what Matherin is doing more than I did last year at the same time when Duarte had that breakout performance. Yeah. No, I totally concur with that. Um it I mean, not to not to again, like I, I'm right there with you, not to say that we're trying to degrade Chris, but it's like the stuff that he's doing, there's just like so much pop to it. Um, I don't that's that probably isn't like the greatest word, but do you get what I'm saying? Like there's just more um there's more force behind it because of like the yeah, way that he plays, sure. and that I just think that that's going to inherently have a little bit more value. Um what do you want to go to next? Well, do we just want to talk about the entire journey of the defense so far? <laughs> yes, let's go. Because it's it. taken a lot of turns. Yeah. And three games. My, a lot of twists and turns. So if we want to go back to the Wizards game on opening night, um, obviously they did not know that Miles Turner was not going to play until I think five o'clock when he mm-hmm. suffered that injury. So you're having to shift your game plan on the fly potentially, or maybe they tried to execute the game plan just with a different person in play. But um, right off the bat, you know, who are you expecting that they would slot in to start with miles out? Cause I, I don't know your impression of that. Uh, I was just figuring Ajax would start. Yeah, I was. And I mean, the two of us, probably the head of the Terry Taylor appreciation club. Yeah. And I was, I was surprised by that. Um, especially because if you're talking about, you know, all this time that Jalen Smith's going to be our starting power forward, 
like I don't know how long it will be until Miles comes back, but mm. at that point in time, like why wouldn't you just start either Goga or Ijax so that Jalen could stay at the four if that's what you're in if that's how you're envisioning him. Um Jalen had a pretty rough go in that opening game oh, against yeah. Washington through three quarters um on both ends of the floor. It was kind of more carryover from preseason. Um I did think that he played better in the fourth, mainly, you know getting out of picks as the screener and having Tyrese find him. And then they went to him at solo five in the fourth quarter and we're switching everything, but just to back up a little bit. So, you know, they play Terry Taylor and Jalen Smith to start the game. And in both of these games, you know, same thing in San Antonio with Jalen and Terry Taylor, they had Jalen in a drop on the very first possession against San Antonio. Only like he was in an aggressive drop which I found to be pretty strange with Jakob Pertle as the screener. And, you know, then Terry Taylor's having to hedge way over. And it just felt like a lot of times that they were having trouble with kind of all the various bigs playing the cat and mouse game and drop between the ball and the roller. And they did a lot of drop at the five spot during preseason, mainly because when you look at what bigs they were playing against, like it made sense to do that against, you know, Mitchell Robinson and who Sengun, they did some of it, even though Sengun made some threes, Isaiah Hartenstein, they were letting, like they weren't playing pop threats. You know, they weren't doing mm-hmm. it. The, what bigs they were playing were mainly role men. So it, it made sense. They were doing it. Plus miles Turner was available. And that's what I'm getting at. Like, it makes me wonder like they, if they originally intended, like we plan to play more drop, whether at the level or back because we have Miles Turner, then all of a sudden Miles Turner's gone. And it's like, okay, well, that doesn't necessarily suit the people that are left behind, but we're trying to regroup on the fly. But like, regardless of that snafu in the Wizards game and in the Spurs game, the transition defense, Mark. (laughs) Um, Uh, It doesn't look like a massive total of fast break points, although I will note that fast break points and transition frequency are not logged the same by uh, tracking websites. So, I mean, some of those possessions were just so egregious in both games where, you know, Terry Taylor and Buddy Heald both, you know, there's there's guys getting completely drives to the basket coast to coast with nobody stopping the ball, nobody communicating about who should be taking the ball. And, you know, that's just kind of energy and effort stuff. And I do credit Tyrese because after the game against San Antonio, which was very notable in the first half, he was getting very frustrated because he was missing shots. And he was taking time to mourn, you know, the missed shot or hop up and down. And the Spurs were just getting to the other end of the court. And he took ownership of that and was like, I have to be better. So, I mean, I thought that was a good thing. But there was a lot of reason why the transition defense was bad. But um, what was your overall thought process on just that aspect? Uh, Wow, yeah. It was kind of like – I think you had a tweet that summed it up for me. It was like watching uh, two teams – and that are playing their third third game of the day at AAU. Um, yeah, like that was very much the vibe. It felt like watching somebody like you know somebody threw an interception after going four verts. So you have the entire team going one way, and then it's immediately all going back the other way. And it just felt like very up and down, like crazy, like that. Um, yeah, I mean the, the transition defense was terrible. I feel like the biggest thing is just all overall defensive communication has felt very rough. Um, in watching, like there's just I mean, there were there was a lot of uh, just throughout the games. There's been a lot of less so yesterday, but I think uh, 
especially in the Wizards and in Spurs game, a lot of pointing at one another, like, yo, that was your your assignment, like this and that. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, there was just a, like a very clear play. I can't remember who scored for the Spurs. I think it might have been Trey Jones, but they just they weren't even coming fast in transition. The entire yeah. Pacers team was back, but just nobody picked them up. And yeah. like they just watched him score and it was like, oh, cool. And yeah, that's happened like five or six times a game before yesterday. So it was, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, bad. yeah, because I mean, that I told you before we hopped on, but that was going to be an article for me because when you looked at it, like, I don't think it's fair right now for me to be hypercritical and be scrutinizing mm-hmm. like complex scheme elements necessarily, especially when you don't have, you know, your best rim protector available. But I do think it's fair game in a season that's about rebuilding to be questioning the habits that they are building and some of the habits that have been on display in those first two games were very similar to the stuff that we were seeing at the end of last season. And you know, I mean, it's like Ijax's running with his back turned, having no idea that the ball's behind him. And then Terry Taylor and Benedict Matherin are like not saying who's going to pick up the ball or who's going to take the perimeter. And like of all the glowing things that we said about Benedict Matherin, I don't take any of them back. But when you watch the film on the transition defense, he's a little bit like Karras and that he's going to be a recurring uh, character in the film of why things are going wrong. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of instances where we know what his speed is in the open floor offensively. I'm not exactly sure why that isn't showing up defensively in terms of getting back. And in terms of like, sometimes he'll just, you know, make a little lunge and reach instead of making an effort to actually get over and stop the ball or, you know, whatever that communication is going to be. I've seen Chris get a little bit frustrated with that a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And then also I think, you know, you've mentioned it like Matherin's obviously very good at crashing the offensive glass, but I do wonder what the balance on that is to a degree, because when you watch the Spurs film back in transition in particular, like there's one play where they're running like the veer action that's supposed to be for, for Matherin out of a sideline, out of bounds play. And then they're like, Oh, the Spurs are playing one, three, one. So TJ skips it to Aaron Neesmith in the corner. And like, this goes back to the Aaron Neesmith attacking closeouts to, you know, ongoing adventure where he should have driven the closeout, but he, he takes a step and shoots a three where he could have made it a two on one. The three is nowhere close hits like the side of the backboard and Benedict Matherin is coming down to below the free throw line where that ball is never going to go, whether it hit the side of the backboard or not, like typically corner threes exhibit a weak side bias. They're going to go to the other side way more than the strong side. And now you've just flattened out the whole defense and you're not going to have numbers to get back. Like if you're, if you're the Toronto Raptors, you can, you can and probably need to crash the glass to that degree because you do not have the shooting. So if you have four people below the free throw line, that's actually helping your transition defense because they have to contain you and keep you off the glass. Like, Maybe that effect happens over the long term with Benedict Matherin because he is good at it. So maybe maybe defenders will stay with him. But there's been some leaking out there. And then, like, he's a rookie, but Buddy is still doing this. Like, Buddy will come in, like, like pretend Jalen Smith is shooting at the right wing and Buddy's at the left wing. When that shot goes up, Buddy has to immediately go. He has to get back, and yet he'll he'll allow himself to get sucked in trying to go get an offensive rebound. And I can't decide, like, is, is this something that like the Pacers have decided, like, this isn't a, this is an efficiency for us. This is something that is good for us to go and try to get these second chance points because we're not always a great defensive rebounding team. This is how we're going to mitigate that. And we're just going to live with whatever, 
you know, leak outs we might get. I, I haven't been able to decide that over the back end of last season in these first few games, but I do think there needs to be a balance. And even if they're not going to adjust that, just some of the effort stuff that was going on in that Spurs game, you don't want to see in game two of an NBA year, regardless yeah. of if it's about wins and losses. Yeah, I uh, a couple of things to break down. Number one, I had like a small aneurysm when you mentioned the Raptors, and I'm trying to envision this team playing against the Raptors. And that's, <laughs> wow. Um, interesting, though. Like the team is third in offensive rebounding already again. Yeah, no, they were good on the offensive glass last year, too. Yeah. Over the back end of the season. uh, It was the defensive glass that was the problem. Yes, defensive glass is 21st right now, which sounds about right. And they're giving up the 29th. uh, So the second worst free throw rate in the league right now. And I think that directly coincides with what the effort was at points because. And hack a purdle, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. True. Now that I think about it, never mind. Yeah. That. That has a sizable uh, sizable part in it, but also like like you talked about a little bit with with the drop, like Jalen has not seen any real improvement yet in what his game looks like as a two on one defender. Um, and that not that I, I think that we expected that to change right away, but that I mean, just overall, I think the fouling is going to be a huge problem this year, given what the defense is um, and just what individual defenders look like. I mean, uh, and the thing is, is they've tried a lot of things on defense already. Mm-hmm. And some of them I've liked, like, you know, in the Washington game, there were moments where, and they did this some last season too, like against Vucevic and against Perzingis, but you know, Perzingis is a pop threat. They don't want to, they don't want to put the defense in rotation against pop threats. So they've generally either from preseason and now they're either just playing that two on two and and kind of letting the big, that's what they're going to be willing to give up because they don't want to rotate over from the weak side. Or what they did in the Washington game is they assigned either Terry Taylor or O'Shea Brissett to Perzingis. When Perzingis screened, they switched those actions, and then they put either Goga or Ijax, whichever one of them was on the floor, and assigned them generally to like Rui Hashimura or I think maybe Kyle Kuzma on a couple possessions. But it was generally Rui and let them do weak side roamer stuff, which those possessions were pretty effective, especially when Aaron Neesmith was on the floor. Like I do want to give some credit to Aaron because I think in the moments where the defense has looked more like, Hey, people know what they're doing. He's generally a part of it because like, you know, if you do switch that pop action and it's, you know, Terry switching out to the ball and now Tyrese is, is on the roll with Przingis Aaron was very timely with either using a kick out switch on those rolls or using a scram switch on the post up and then being pretty good too about pressuring Przingis and pushing his pickup point outside the free throw line. So like that happened, they were in drop at the beginning of that game. And then by the end of the game, when they played Jalen at solo five, they were switching on everything and doubling the post-ups, which, I mean, that ended up working. They carved out some of the lead there. And then in San Antonio, it's funny when you look at it, because, like, just looking at – I didn't really like the narrative of, like, after the game, the commentary on, like, well, we don't have Miles Turner. Like, you're right, you don't, and that sucks. Like, it sucks for him. It sucks for you. Nobody wanted to see him get injured already at the beginning of the season when he didn't play the last 38 games or whatever it was. But, like, you gave up 17 threes, and it's not fair to expect that Miles Turner would erase that. Like to to lop all of that on him and be like, well, if we just had him, and I'm not saying that it wouldn't because he is a better communicator. There are other, you know, intangible elements, not just him blocking shots that would have potentially shown up. But when you're not being watertight on perimeter switches between two guards and you're going to perimeter switch between two guards, whether he's out there or not, I don't know how he's fixing that. Like, yeah. 
that's a problem that you're just going to have to fix of your own defense. And it's been ongoing since February of last year where guys disconnect way too soon. The next guy isn't ready to take the ball. And then they're giving up a wide open three. And that's been present in all three games. It just hasn't hurt them. It didn't hurt them as much against Detroit because Detroit didn't shoot the ball as well. But um, yeah, so I didn't really like like, well, you know, we didn't have miles. I'm like, and I'm not saying they're making an excuse. It's just like, you know, I don't, I don't think it was fair to expect that when they scored Spurs had 138 points. And I think they had like what 40 points in the paint. So they were scoring a heck of a lot of points in places where miles Turner isn't going to be. Well, yeah, it's tough because, uh, well, not, not tough. It's tough to watch because it's, it's always, or I shouldn't say always, but like the team is, they're not awesome at containing the initial drive, but it's the scramble that is just like, Oh my God. Like there was a play in the wizards game where after the initial drive, there were just four guys standing on the baseline. And that was like what the defense looked like for the next three or four seconds. Like, it's just like stuff like that, where it's like, wow, okay, there's there's a lot to be done here. Um, one that thing being I'll- said, oh, oh that sorry. being said, I do want to head to the Pistons game just yes. a little bit because there, there was better stuff, I yes. felt. For sure. Like, number one, the energy was better. Mm-hmm. Um, you could tell the guys were more, like I said, at least more energized on the end of the floor. We know how many blocks they got. I do think the blocks were in part. I think Ronald Norritz co- coordinating the defense this year. That's what it sounds like. And I thought that the adjustments there, even though they went from the night before giving up 17 th- threes to the Spurs, I thought that they were wise in that it's like, okay, we don't have Miles Turner. We're going to switch everything tonight. They were switching even when Gogo was out there, but they were really shrinking space. Like with the exception of, I mean, sometimes they even did it a little bit with bogey, but they were really shrinking in off those other shooters. So like if Gogo was vulnerable in space, they were putting bodies there. Um, when Cade Cunningham had peop- had, you know, a switch against a favorable, one of the favorable bigs, they were shrinking in mainly off Killian Hayes, sometimes off Corey Joseph um, livers at times pretty much at least two people with the exception of Sadiq Bay and bogey, like whoever the other people are on the floor, they're helping off and being very aggressive, being early in the lane and helping off of the corners. Even if that meant, I think they gave up like 12 corner three attempts last night and that was visible, but um, I thought that the game plan was pretty smart given what the personnel was. And like, it, it could have failed pretty poorly if Detroit shot the ball really well, but they weren't. And also like, they just weren't making, like, if you look at some of the, the screenshots, like some of the reads that Jade and Ivy and even Cade were making at times through the first three quarters, like they weren't even seeing the opposite side of the floor where those guys were to really be punishing the Pacers for how far off they were coming from shooters. So, um, and then also just Jade and Ivy in general, like, if we think back to last year, not that Jaden Ivey is Giannis, clearly he is not. But like in terms of building a wall and having multiple bodies there when Jaden was getting ready to drive, it was so much better than what we had seen in like the first game they played against Milwaukee last year. Or like independent of the awesomeness MVP level of Giannis, like just positioning wise, they weren't even getting there to be helping when Miles and Sabonis were like the primary Giannis defenders, which was a whole nother talking point. But mm. I did think that they did better things defensively. It, it still is far from perfect. And if they played a different team um, with better shooters and more talent, I don't think the plan would have worked, but it was better than what the first two games were. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that point. Um, I felt first half, I felt like he got, got pretty often, especially by Isaiah Stewart in the post. Um, 
but I thought Isaiah Jackson's second half of defense yesterday was pretty good. Um, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, because in part, like what I said earlier about what the Pistons were doing with Killian Hayes, like there was a stretch of possessions where he was really able to just blow shit up at the rim. And I was where, like, this is what yeah, I where see. Goga and Isaiah Jackson were playing off of Killian Hayes and they were just leaving him. Like, even if he was above the break, like Isaiah Jackson just leaves and he goes and provides help. Like, this is in part why they had so many blocks. And also because Duran was playing and he was in the dunker spot. So there was already somebody there. And then they were generally bringing over the other person from the corner, too. So there was just, like, always so many bodies there. And then, like I said, like, the Pistons were trying to take, like, some contested shots around the rim instead of looking for some of those open kickouts. So, Mm. um that being said, Cade did have a really strong fourth quarter. I think he had like 12 points and Terry Taylor struggled I mean, they were switching everything and, and he wasn't containing there very well. I think that like two of Cade's step backs were or self-created threes were against Terry. And then he had a couple drives against him too. So that's, I think why Terry probably didn't finish the game, but, um, and, and another element of that one other shout out is that Aaron Neesmith was picking up Cade full court in the minutes when he was out there, especially in the fourth quarter. So at least was putting some pressure on the ball and forcing him to work before then he switched off whenever they were switching stuff. But um, I thought Aaron Neesmith again, like I will give him credit because I feel like anytime there's been competent moments on defense, he's generally been on the floor. He's the only perimeter defender that I have like, like anything really positive to say about right now on the ball. Well, it's like stymieing how many times you can count that they've given up straight line drives with the person's strong hand, like whoever it is, like, or just going to give Jeremy Sohan a complete, you know, one way ticket. That was wild. One hand to the rim. (laughs) Like like, that happened in the Wizards game. Like it's happened so many times with guys where it's like, can you not close out and shade them to their strong hand every time? But um, yeah. Uh, You mentioned Goga. You want to talk about Goga first? Let's second. let's do talk about Goga. Goga Vitazi, and it's not just the box score. He had 14 and 15 yesterday, which was great to see. But that I mean, that was the best game of his career, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he just kind of looks like an NBA player now. Like again, it's not perfect, but he's doing less of the having to dip the ball all the way down to to finish around the rim. Um the DHO partnership with Buddy is actually like kind of a thing. It's not again, it's not perfect because he's not really fully setting a screen, but he's directing things. And like there was one that he had off of a live rebound in uh it was in the Wizards game. Or it might have been the Spurs game, I can't remember, but um just like went and immediately swung DHO actually. He's like the guy that I look at right now at the five where other than oh, obviously like Terry, but other than Terry, where I'm like, okay, I actually believe in like him kind of making something happen with that. Um and then the defense again, it's not it's not perfect, but the Pacers had their stretch really uh not opening up the game is the wrong way to put it, but like kind of keeping a lead and staying in front with Goga playing the five yesterday and being pretty effective defensively. Um how have you felt about his minutes? I mean, yeah, I mean, I said in preseason that I had felt because somebody brought this up to me uh, on Twitter and was like, I heard you say on the podcast that Goga outplayed Jalen. I'm like, I'm not saying that I would like, obviously Goga is not going to play at the four, mm-hmm. but I do think that Goga played better than Jalen in preseason. Like, and Jalen did have a rough couple games here. He played much better against the Wizards to his credit. But I do think in part why Jalen and Goga both played well against, I, I don't know why I just said the Wizards, the Pistons is what lineups out there. I mean, they're playing Boyan Bogdanovich at the four. 
Isaiah Stewart at the five, who's undersized at the five position. Like I'm not completely surprised that they both gobbled up like a million rebounds in that game. And some of what both of them doing were doing was like off the glass. And then also the Pistons were switching a lot of stuff, which kind of like the Pacers, they're not great at doing. Although Isaiah Stewart last year really did stymie them in the game in March um, with perimeter stuff. But like, I, I do agree with you. I mean, I've said this before. It's a very low bar. You could probably step over it, but Goga is, I think, by far the best option in terms of getting you to the next action as a big and providing any sort of connection with handoffs and side-to-side action. I mean, he had a play in that Pistons game yesterday where he changed directions. Like, it, it wasn't as fluid as Sabonis, but to see somebody actually dribble handoff to the left reverse pivot and then go over to the right side and get it to the next guy. And then when they switched and he had Corey Joseph on him, it was automatic. And he dove into that knowing that when the guy shot the ball, that he could smash Corey under the rim, get the rebound and put back. And that's how he got one of the and ones. So I do think he's playing with more force. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that that's something. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's something that we always would have seen. And speaking of force, I don't know if you saw this, but in the Spurs game, it was hysterical because Goga finished a play like I think Matherin led him with like where Goga was gonna have to put it on the floor once maybe in transition. And he kind of led with his leg. It might've been an offensive foul against Jakob Pertl, but Jakob Pertl went back and they didn't call anything. They, they might've mm-hmm. called a foul on Pertl. I don't really remember, but in the background, Tyrese Halliburton is demonstrably doing the rock, the baby for a long time, like a long time. And it, it was like not a rock, the baby play, but Jakob Pertl's then complaining to the official and there's a timeout and he, he's being like really extra with it. So find somebody who supports you the way Tyrese Halliburton does and doing the rock, the baby and support of Goga. It was, it was quite funny if people want to go back and watch it, but That's I think tremendous. it was in the second, I think it was in the second quarter. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that Goga's given pretty decent minutes. Again, like I can look at some of the stuff defensively, and I don't really think that Goga switching out um, all season long is going to be super effective unless you're playing a team that isn't going to shoot the ball really well and that you feel comfortable yeah. helping off their shooters because it was an automatic yesterday that if he was the big that was switched out to Cade or to Jaden Ivy or whoever it was, they were bringing somebody over to the nail. They were bringing somebody over to the block and they were going to crowd that space and they were good at it, but like, that's not going to work all the time. And I don't necessarily think that he's gotten better in his own execution of switches. I think it was more a thing of like looking at the results and thinking it was better necessarily so much than the process, but um, I have seen things that he's, he's doing well. And I think that he's earned getting to, play in the minutes that he's gotten I will say that in part because of the rotation stuff like even just looking at the Spurs game they played five people at center in that game and Miles and Daniel Tice did not play like if I had told you that they would play five different people at center in a game and two of their centers would be sidelined like they played they started Jalen they played Isaiah Jackson they played Goga they played James Johnson for like a couple minutes at the five and then they closed with Terry Taylor at the five So, like, when you're playing with that many guys as your, like, defensive anchor with this many different lineups, I'm not completely shocked that the defense has been what it's been, and I'm not blaming the coaching staff for why they're going through that many different lineups. When you're having that many different defensive issues, you are going to try, you know, putting different groups out there and seeing what works. But um, I do think that if we talk a little bit about why the starting lineup change happened, one benefit of doing that 
is if you play Isaiah Jackson at the five, shift Jalen over to where they envision him, although I still have some questions offensively about him as a four, then you can just play Goga as the backup five. Like there's not as many different lineup configurations that you're doing when it, before it was like, oh, we're starting Jalen at the five. Well, now we want to sub Isaiah Jackson in and play him some at the five. And well, now we also want to play Goga some at the five. Like it's just two groupings. You're playing, you know, Terry Taylor and Goga and you're playing Isaiah Jackson and Jalen. And, you know, I, I think that's just a little bit cleaner if that made sense in my explanation. No, I get what you're saying. Um, well, yeah, let's, why do you feel the starting lineup change happened? Well, in part, like, what we said about Aaron Neesmith. Like, I think it was just logical to have him out there from the tip because he's one of the few people that's making rotations on time and kind of being where he needs to be when he needs to be there. It's not completely perfect, but I do think it's been better when he's out there. And then like in Jalen's case, he just kind of struggled through two games. And I, I was surprised to begin with that Isaiah Jackson wasn't just starting to be honest and that they went with Terry instead, but, um, that was just my opinion. So oh, I, I agree. were like, you expecting that it was going to be Benedict Matherin though? That I, was going okay, to be inserted into the starting lineup. Here's my thing. I don't care that Benedict isn't starting right now. I don't really either. Like it, I'm I very indifferent it to on it. Twitter. And like, number one, he's playing starters minutes. Yeah. Like, he's played the second most minutes on the team. He played the entire fourth quarter. Yeah, exactly. So to me, and also too, like, again, small sample size, but like it's working incredibly well. So I don't think that it it matters a whole ton. Like he's going to start eventually. Like yeah. I think that goes without saying. But to me, I just don't care that he's not starting right now. Like that, I understand bringing him off the bench to start the year and just seeing what it looks like and and working him in. Um, clearly, he is playing really well right now. Um, so I don't care about that. Uh, I agree with you on the Nismith start, and I'm interested to see how he continues to play because it feels like we're going to keep seeing that. And I agree with you that I think that's the right thing. Um, I'm trying to think if I wanted to ask you anything else off that. Um, how do you feel about Terry Taylor's first three games? I mean, I think Terry Taylor's mainly been what you expect. I thought it was rough for him, like I said, in the fourth quarter against the Pistons with Cade Cunningham kind of hunting him a little bit and him struggling to stay in front of the ball. But I mean, I think he's mainly just giving you what you expect. I wouldn't have started him personally. But I think that Rick values the fact that he can play within flow game and is generally going to make the next right read. So um, I can understand it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I imagine he's going to finish better soon. It's just been, uh, again, small sample size. They played against. uh, I don't remember what I was going to say with that, but yes. Um, Do you want to talk about Duarte? Yeah, I mean, I want to point out, I don't know how many people watch the the qualifying games like I did when I did my breakdown. I still think that Duarte is doing good things on a basketball court. I just don't, he's, he's not making shots from three, clearly. I think he's mm-hmm. shooting like 21% yeah, or something from three. Right and that carries over to those games. He did not shoot the ball well at Summer League in Las Vegas. He did not shoot the ball well in the friendlies, except for one. And he did not shoot the ball well with the Dominican Republic in the two qualifying games. So I do have, and I'm not trying to start some conspiracy theory here. I'm not a doctor, but I do have some questions about like 
if the toe is affecting his shot at all. Because in part, when I was watching the Dominican Republic games, like they were running a ton of floppy action mm-hmm. and Chris still isn't great shooting off movement. So I attributed some of why he was missing as many shots as he was to that. And also like he was having to take some very deep shots because he was getting trapped because he was more of a primary option. I'm like, you know, that kind of makes sense. But then I don't know if you saw it, but it was, it was clear as day with like six minutes to go against the Spurs. He goes in for a drive, lands on the toe, comes up hopping the whole way down the court. And then when there's a stoppage of play, he bent over and grabbed that toe. So like I was kind of preparing, I didn't know if he would play on the second night of a back-to-back and I was expecting that he wouldn't be in the starting lineup if he did, just because, you know, some of what the shooting struggles have been and, and trying to get him going a little bit. But then Rick was asked, I believe, by Jer- Jeremiah Johnson before the game and Rick said that he tweaked the toe in the prior game. So like that just makes me wonder if there isn't something that's like just been ongoing and lingering there. Like I'm not going to blame all of it on that because I did think that he did some nice things during preseason. Obviously he leaped and had the big dunk um, on Saturday. So I don't know the intent of that. It's not my body. I I don't know how he feels, but um, I do think that might be somewhat of an impact at least over the last game and a half. But other than that, like, I don't know how you feel, but like they haven't cashed in on some potential assists that he's had. Yeah. I think that he's made some nice passing reads in all three games that haven't necessarily been there. And then the other thing that needs to be a- accounted for with Chris is twofold. Number one, he's mainly being the person assigned to the other team's top option. That was happening during preseason. He's the person, you know, having to defend above his size against RJ Barrett. Um, he's the one who's getting aside to Bradley Beal on opening night. Like, I don't think it's completely unexpected that, you know, he's not going to have quite the same role in the offense. And then they're, like I said before, they're not running some of the same stuff for him that Buddy and Matherin are both regularly getting. So I think that that makes it a little bit awkward too. And then there's just also the element that Benedict Matherin's behind him and Benedict Matherin is playing as well as he is. Like think back to, you know, Sabonis's and Victor's first breakout year when Sabonis really was putting up numbers. I think Miles had like a concussion for a time and then Miles comes back and it's like that guy's behind you and he's really playing really well. And like, that's a good thing for the team. I'm not saying there shouldn't be competition, but um I, I'm sure that's somewhat extra pressure. Like I not saying that Chris doesn't want his teammate to do well, but like, I would be surprised if that, like I would be thinking about that. Like, Oh, that, that guy who plays my same position and does some of my same stuff. Like, where do I fit in and trying to find your fit and not be pressing too hard with what you're doing. But um, what have you thought of Chris's minutes? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm there with you. Um, it's made like, I, I kind of, I, had forgotten that he did uh, stub his toe, like, or not even just stub his toe, but like kind of aggravated his toe. But you can kind of tell and watch him. Like he doesn't look quite as. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't look as sure-footed. He's yeah. definitely not in that last game because he had the one spin move and he did not want to plant yes. and get up off that left. Which was frustrating because he had the really nice spin move before that one too. I, I think he smoked the layup. I can't remember off, yeah. off the top of my head, but I think part of, I want, I again, we're not doctors, but it does feel like part of the finishing issues have just been due to that. Um, because the lift doesn't look super right and he doesn't look super comfortable. But like I think he's still doing good things out there. Like, like you mentioned, I think again, like you just have to kind of take this as yes, uh role change, um, just a little bit of the awkwardness with injury, and like this is a different team. Like, I, I think it's more about like seeing the process stuff with him. And I generally have been like, I think that Chris has looked like 
like doing the things that we want to see from him. Um, and I think like, like you mentioned too, I don't think that he's been some huge minus defensively. Like I think he's obviously like when noting what he's been asked to do. Yeah. Um, like I, he is far down the list of guys who have been a problem defensively. Um, and I agree too, with what you're saying about, about Benedict. Like, not that I think Chris is thinking about that, yeah. but I know if I was in a spot, it'd be hard not to be like, um, it just is uh, it definitely would be a little bit of an awkward thing. And I mean, it already is kind of an awkward thing unintentionally. Um, so, I mean, that's something that we've kind of talked about the last year, even before the Benedict selection, like it just, what does this mean for, for Chris, if the team is going in a completely different direction, because I was saying this to somebody yesterday who, uh, who texted me and like, oh, I, I really don't like how, how Chris looks right, right now. And I, I explained the injury part, but then I also was like, you know, this is, I just think he looks completely fine if he's playing on a different team that has more defined stuff going on and like part of it too like he is just kind of in a little bit of a shooting slump right now yeah but um yeah if some of those shots fall which i mean he's getting decent looks i don't know that we're having the same conversation 100 percent um and and the other thing too is that like he didn't play that i mean what was it like 100 minutes with with tyrese last year like i mean he just he wasn't out there really with this group and that's true of a lot of people like obviously benedict mather never played with these people (laughs) last year but in the sense that at the beginning of last year he was playing with a more veteran team and he did have Sabonis to play off of and you know handoff situations and other stuff like that and to build chemistry with um if you're not the aggressive driver that Benedict Matherin is and having that same momentum to get downhill having somebody to partner with like with that probably would make you look a little bit better than what he has thus far and two um or just just the idea that too that like yeah this is the same coaching staff but they're not running all the same plays like they've worked in a lot of different um actions and play types and what they're triggering like they're not running all the same stuff as they did last year either there is some carryover but um i think that there's probably an adjustment there as well it was clear you know in the pistons game last night like right off the bat they're running you know tyrese off that ucla cut to get him a post up and then chris is supposed to go you know, off those diagonal screens and then come back and get a three at the top of the key. They try to do that right off the beginning. So it, it seems pretty evident to me that they know that he's been, been in a slump and that they're trying to get him going, which, you know, I think is kind of encouraging in a way that like the team is, is recognizing that and, and it didn't work. Like he obviously didn't convert on a lot of shots last night, but um, hopefully that that'll turn around though. It has been lingering. Like I said, since the summer that his shot really hasn't been falling. Yeah. No, I, I concur 100%. Um, what direction do you want to go in now? Do we want to talk about, did we cover, well, Jalen had a really big game last night too. Um, in addition to Goga, obviously had, I mean, the whole team had a lot of blocks, which we kind of touched on. Jalen also did a pretty good job, I felt, coming up with some contested rebounds in that game on the defensive glass. I don't have his numbers in front of me, but um double double for him as well as for goga yes let's talk about Jalen. um one thing that i found encouraging uh because we've we've talked about this before he uh he took advantage of an early i think it was only once it might have happened uh, in the wizards game too i can't remember but i know in uh in the, i got I, shoot who was guarding him? i think it might have been it was either sadiq bay or jay nive who was guarding him but uh Jalen deep sealed them in the paint and Yes. Posted them up. 
it scored. And I was like, all right, this is like this is early transition stuff that you want to see the team do when they have when they're running a too big lineup. Um, so that was encouraging. No, that definitely was because that was a thing last year when they played the Pistons and the Pistons were doing all that switching where they basically were not using the bigs at all. Mm -hmm. Like not in a way where the post up becomes like a seal screen for them to drive, not just as a duck in. So that I I did mark that. I forgot about that, but I did think that that was kind of a critical play. And while we're right there, like not to just completely skip over Jalen, but I just now realized that we really haven't talked about what Tyrese Halliburton's doing. (laughs) That's a good point. Uh, you wrote some good stuff about that today. So I'm going to let you lead off. Yeah. So, I mean, I just was watching that game back and to see him in the fourth quarter last night, get those switches against Isaiah Stewart. And he was using them completely with the intention to score. Like he rocked Isaiah Stewart back and forth twice to get back to his right. And that is his go-to move. Like, it's not like I've never seen him do a sidestep to the right against a switch, but the fact that like, it was kind of mentioned on the broadcast, like, this is too much dribbling. I'm like, no, I kind of love it. The fact that he's actually willing to dance with the ball and hold it because he wants to get his own shot off. Like, not that you want to see that all the time. It's not always going to be the right read. But, like, you can just tell that there's a shift in mentality there. Yeah. And then seeing him get another one and back up and get this another self-created three out of it, like, it wasn't necessarily seeing him driving against those switches, which was kind of somewhat the problem last March and why they shifted the offense to Malcolm Brogdon in the way that they did. But like, that's what happened. Like he could not get into the paint against Killian Hayes. He couldn't do stuff against the switches against Isaiah Stewart. And for the final six minutes, he attempted two shots. I think one was off ball and Malcolm Brogdon was running stuff and it was just really one and done. And it was, it was a moment that was bookmarked and that I kept monitoring then whenever they were playing switching teams of what he would do. And like when we did our podcast over the summer about like, what five games we each wanted to watch. We both picked the Pistons game somewhat because, you know, the whole Jaden Ivy, Cade Cunningham versus Tyrese Benedict Matherin element. And that did show up last night. But like part of my reason was I want to see what he's going to do against the switch. And like he did it. And in the fourth quarter so far, he's he and Matherin are averaging the most shot attempts per game right now. Tyrese leads the team in shot attempts per game. He's averaging over 17 shots like against the Spurs. He got seven free throw attempts in the fourth quarter against the Spurs. And one of those was on a three, but he also got some and ones and was kind of using his shoulders at the end of those games. So I do think we can see a shift in mentality in Mm -hmm. him looking for his own shot. And I think that that's pretty big. Yeah. Even yesterday, I think he had what six free throw attempts in the first quarter. Um, Either first quarter, first half, I can't remember off the top of my head. But even if he wasn't finishing on the inside, which I think that's another, like, not that he's been bad finishing on the inside, but I think, like, he's just been, like, like you're mentioning, very aggressive getting downhill. This is, again, small sample size. So be careful with the numbers. Uh, I think this is, this, I I typed this on Twitter too, because it's, it's more a byproduct. He's missed some really weird catch and shoots that he, like, never misses because he was, like, absolutely wide open. But, Right now, while shooting 41% from deep on just under six attempts per game, um, only 14.3% of his threes have been assisted compared to 58.4 last season, 57.9% post-trade. Again, part of that is buoyed by him missing some shots that he would not normally miss catch and shoot. Um, but like like you mentioned, like it's just been very concerted and it's been pretty awesome to see like him, uh, like you're just so used to seeing like, okay, there's no avenue from here. I'm going to pass the ball and move like, and then go be in the slot. And it's different now. It's not like fully like a complete mentality shift, but there's, there's a lot going on there that has been encouraging. So I'm, I totally agree. Um, Like just reading his numbers is wild. 
26 points per game, 9.7 assists on 50, 41, 94.7 shooting is, is kind of wild. Um, yeah, and six free throw <laughs> attempts per game. Exactly. Like, in one of those, like I said, he, he got more against the Spurs than what was the case in the other two. But still, like, even last night, I mean, I've said this many times, like, I would be willing to sacrifice, and he's being hyper-efficient right now, but I'd be willing to sacrifice some of his efficiency yes. for, for I, I don't know how else to term it, but, like, bad shots just to get him to take them around the rim. And, like, that happened last night in the Pistons game where he had a matchup against Boyan Bogdanovich and the person, he didn't want the screen, but I think – I think Jalen, I don't know who brought the screen, but they were being guarded by Cade. So now Tyrese goes from having bogey to having Cade Cunningham, but he still drove it. Like it was a very off balance shot when he got there that really had no chance to finish, but he took it. And like, I think that that's a positive step forward in terms of him not being completely reliant just on his floater and being willing to do that. I mean, he has, it's been kind of interesting because the fourth quarter's kind of been important in these two because he started out pretty poorly in the Spurs game. He didn't play all that well through three quarters, but then, you know, kind of exploded there in the fourth. And in part, I think, you know, they've been down by pretty big deficits in those first two. And I think somewhat both teams kind of took their foot off the gas. I mean, I do think that the Pacers changed the complexion of that game with the hack of hurdle and the full court pressing, but it also felt like the Wizards and the Spurs were both like playing not to lose more than playing to win to a degree. So I take some of that with a grain of salt, but I mean, still like he, what he's doing, I think is exactly what everybody wanted to see. It was the thing that, and and hopefully it can continue and carry over a larger sample size, but we needed to see if he could maintain um, what he does as a passer while also being more score first in certain circumstances and just making the right read. And I think for the most part, he's been doing that. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Is there anything else you want to hit on? No, I think that that actually, covers everything that i had from these three games okay cool yeah i'm trying to think if there's anything else i think that that's it on my end um i do one last thing i do want to hit on i just uh there were a lot of takes uh that the pacers were quote unquote trying to tank by holding out miles and shit like that i just found a little bit aggravating because it seemed like i mean in hearing him talk um, in the way everything played out, like I think it's pretty clear that it was just a freak accident and that was not intended at all. So um, I have been a little bit frustrated with seeing that sentiment get thrown around um, routinely. Um, I don't know if you felt the same. I'm not trying to speak for you, but. Um, no, I mean, he seemed pretty dejected and disappointed to me when I saw the interview of him talking about not being able to be ready to play and that he had family in town. So, um, and like I said, like if, if if that was the case, like Miles playing in that Spurs game, he would help. He's certainly the best rim protector, best center, best defensive communicator that they have. But that wouldn't have been fixing all of their problems anyways. And I I, I don't think that he was sitting out. I think that he stepped on a ball boy's foot. That's very unfortunate. And the Pacers have to be careful with that. He has to be careful with that. He's in a contract year. Um, depending upon what the Pacers want to do, they want him to be healthy. So. Um, I just think that that was the long and the short of it. I didn't see that dialogue, but I, I that wasn't my opinion. I didn't think they were trying to tank the three games. So, well, awesome. I'm glad we're in lockstep on that. Um, Caitlin, I think that closes up for us. Um, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. We uh, the Pacers play the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. I guess I should say today when this, this podcast comes out. Um, Anything's possible in that matchup, Mark. It sure as hell seems like it, given how the year started for them. 
Um, also, the the Blazers are three and zero now. They just beat the Lakers uh, right now in what looked like an absolutely wild fourth quarter. Um, but Caitlin, I'm I'm excited to do this pod this year. It's going to be a different pod, but it's going to be fun. So, to everyone listening, thank you for listening, and most importantly, have a good rest of your day. <laughs>